This podcast may contain disturbing content for some listeners. It's intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. This is True Crime XS. From the San Francisco Gate, on May 27, 1998, missing Yosemite hiker saw a massive search continued Wednesday morning at Yosemite National Park for a San Francisco hiker who has been missing since Monday. Gate was last seen by other hikers at seven. Did you get all that? Yeah, I didn't either. But that's how it feels sometimes researching this case, even inviting others to look at it. I felt that because it's such a confusing mixture of information that it befuddles even the most astute critical thinker. Let's try it one more time, one at a time, and see if it makes more sense. In his 1971 book, They Know the Unknown, Martin Ivan writes in the introduction, Genius, Fear, and Courage. If any man in our century personified the spirit of skepticism, it was the caustic, brilliant George Bernard Shaw. He taunted the men of his generation who thought they had communicated with spirits of the dead through mediums, and he once organized a fake seance to prove how gullible they were. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, creator of Sherlock Holmes, said, I have in the presence of witnesses unquestionably seen my mother since her death, but what I must say must be false because Bernard Shaw cheated his friends. Was there ever a more absurd non-sequitur than that? But Shaw was not a simple, intolerant scoffer. On October 24, 1941, he wrote Dr. Jen Ehrenwald, now a psychoanalyst practicing in New York, that the day before yesterday, he had suddenly asked his secretary what had become of his friend Maurice Barron, whether he was alive or dead. Nothing, he wrote, had occurred to remind me of him for years, he added. Yesterday, I received a letter from him. Apparently, he, by writing a letter to me, reminded me of him before the letter arrived. This occurs so often that it may be worth inquiring whether there is not more in it than coincidence, though the number of coincidences must be enormous and the case is few. In this apparent case of telepathy or clairvoyance, Shaw added another. He had his letter stated, suffered a sudden spinal pain while attending a lecture. A woman who strongly disapproved of Shaw had been sitting behind him on the platform, so that my spine was within point-blank range of her face, which expressed concentrated hatred. This he regarded as a clear case of a telepathic curse. Dr. Aaron Wald wrote back to Shaw, asking whether a draft on the lecture platform might have caused his discomfort. By return mail, a postcard arrived with this forward message. There was no draft. When it came to things that happened to him directly, even George Bernard Shaw put skepticism firmly in its place. By July 3rd, when I release the finale of the season on this killer, I'm going to tell you eight locations where I think, with a little probing, a little prodding, and some critical thinking, bodies can be found. Eight. Not one. Not two. Eight. Two of them are two of the biggest mysteries of the true crime era, the modern era, the era with Facebook and all of the news media that we see every day in the 24-hour news cycle. I've actually developed a total of 37 locations, but giving them all away, well, once I give you one, you'll see why I'm giving them one at a time, and you'll realize they're all connected. That's why the killer didn't want us to know where they were. But these eight aren't on private land. They're just sitting there, and these are just the bodies in the United States. It's a lot like a Rubik's Cube, and in my house, The people here that live with me tend to take the stickers off to make all the sides match. 
But I like puzzles. I like patterns. I like seeing things that no one else has. Lydia Perkins gave me a starting point of late 1997. So now I just had to focus from 1997 until July of 1998 when the killer left for the army. When I was hunting through the pictures on his stupid computer, I found a case that fit. But to rely on it, it felt like I was cheating at a Rubik's Cube. I'm going to tell you about a couple of cases, but I'm not going to bury the lead here between Lydia Perkins and the time he left for the U.S. Army. I think he killed between five and seven people. If I'm perfectly honest about all of these cases, I kept finding them, and another one, and another one. But they couldn't all be him. I had to pick and choose. Here are some of the examples of what I ruled out. Cullen Origin Jones. Age 18, went missing on February 12, 1998, in Kaiser, Oregon. He was six foot tall, 145 pounds. Cullen had gone to Bagby Hot Springs in Mount Hood National Forest. His belongings were found near a tree, but he has not been seen since. And here's another one. Lisa Noel Sled was last seen in Marysville, Washington on December 12, 1997. She was riding in a red four-wheel drive 1984 Toyota pickup truck with her boyfriend, Eric Madison. During the late afternoon hours, their truck got stuck in the mud west of Interstate 5. The two of them went to a friend's house to ask for help. The friend couldn't help them, so they left. And on December 13th, Madison returned to the friend's home to ask for help again. Sledge wasn't with him at the time, and she has never been heard from again. Authorities didn't find the truck until January of 1998. It was in a wooded area east of Mainview Drive and north of Waterworks Road. It was only then that police realized the vehicle had been stolen. Sledge is considered to be missing under suspicious circumstances, and her case remains unsolved. She's five foot six, 150 pounds, and was 28 years old, with brown hair and blue eyes. And this one I had to file firmly under maybe. Catherine Ann Wallace went missing in early February of 1998. Wallace was last seen at her residence in Grants Pass, Oregon, on February 1st, 1998. Her husband stated she simply disappeared from the residence, leaving her purse and clothes behind, as well as pictures she normally carried. She has never been heard from again. Wallace's husband didn't report her missing. Her father, who lived out of state, filed the report four months after he had last contact with her. Her social security card was found in her husband's possession. He also had her driver's license, with the photo cut out. After her disappearance, Wallace's gray and maroon 1975 Dodge minivan with the Oregon license plate number TRA107 was found abandoned in Redding, California. She and her husband both had their names on the title. Her husband stated he couldn't afford to retrieve the vehicle, even though it had his belongings in it. He was unemployed and had prior convictions for driving under the influence. Two guns normally kept in the van were missing when it was located. Wallace went missing under suspicious circumstances, as she is believed to have been murdered. Her husband is considered a possible suspect, but no one has been charged in connection with her disappearance. She was 5 foot 5 inches tall, weighed 130 pounds. She had brown hair, brown or blue eyes, and may use the alias names Bond or McCarthy. You may be thinking, is he going to tell us who he thinks was killed? And the answer is yes, in just a moment. I needed to go back and take a look at the Namus list, but first, Meg and I are going to explain to you from an earlier conversation sort of what we were looking for there. And even though Meg thinks it's really not related, this will give you an idea of the information that was made available. Who was on this guy's computer other than Danielle Imbo and Richard Patron? Okay, so the way they broke it down, it was more about identifying faces than putting those useful faces into clusters. The FBI tech basically said the hard drive they dealt with from the computer in the home, which is what they made available in the, the FOIA request, is broken down something like this. Wait, just to be clear, this is not the computer that he had in his car 
the one from the arrest in Texas. Correct. There are three computers examined, but ostensibly these results came from a tower that was seized from a search of the killer's home. The FBI developed a way to examine the photos found there for investigative leads purposes and summarized the findings in a report. They used facial recognition software to try and match the faces. On the hard drive or a copy of the hard drive that they made to do this, they found there were 911, 743,000 graphics files. Of those files, 13,299 were suitable to be used for processing steps to put them through an automated facial matching system, similar to how fingerprints are indexed and matched in APHIS, but faces. They cross-matched those images to narrow it down to 3,600 faces. Then technicians manually went through those 3,600 and made a group of 520 subjects to compare. Pulled the faces of 520 people from the cache files on the computer. Were they all missing or deceased? Uh, we don't know. We don't, we don't have the actual photos. What we have is what happened when they took the 520 individual faces and then searched for matches by trying to automatically cross-match them to photos contained within the gallery of NamUs. Okay, so they went into NamUs, and then they, they took these photos as a test to see if any of the 520 were exact or approximate matches to the photos in NamUs, and what happened? They got 62 matches. Oh, that's a lot. It, it's more than 10%. In addition to that, the 62 matches lined up with 44 different people in the NamUs database. Some of the photos in NamUs and on the hard drive were different photos, but the same individuals, probably from media reports about those people's cases. We don't have the exact matches. We have a long file name here and that then matches up to the NamUs case and the date and the general information about the missing person. They've redacted the name. But it's easy to match up the majority of them with the information provided to be able to look at it and put a name to a face. From this, we can't tell that the killer was definitely looking at NamUs, but we can surmise that he was probably reading about these cases somewhere. It's broken down by the number of images that matched for each hit. Okay, so what do we do with that? Well, we can loosely translate it for our own interpretation. The breakdown is like this. We know that a few of the cases are no longer searchable on NamUs. Specifically, missing person number 898 had five matches on the killer's tower. This one is listed as recovered now. I was able to determine the rough dates that the cases we couldn't grab names for had been entered into NamUs. And NamUs does not reuse the date or the numbers uh, of the missing the person. The right. cases are entered in order, but the date of last contact is not relevant to the order. In other words, the day they put it in is what's relevant. In the, in the case of a 1985 case that's never been entered into NamUs, it could be entered from a stack of cases that even though are like 900, 901, and 902 all entered on a specific date in, say, 2012, they could be cases from 1970, 1990, 2014 that just never made their way into NamUs. Is that what you're saying? Correct. What I was able to determine is that the date entered meant the, the missing person's report was not after that date, meaning case 901 was entered on December 12, 2008. So it was unlikely that 898 was a case after December 12, 2008. It could be anything before that date, but not that date or after. Oh, okay. So, one, three, seven, five, six. This is after the next missing 
name on the missing persons list, 13744. 56 was entered on January 27, 2012 for a 1991 Florida case. So I don't think the missing persons case could be date of last contact after January 27, 2012. Ah, that makes sense. I was sort of hoping that one of these cases would be the 2012 Alaska case that we are already aware of so that we could rule it out. I don't think that's it. Basically, we are not going to be able to collect data from these few cases. Missing person 898-13744-4241 and 5407 are considered closed and archived. NamUs has the data, but I think we need to come across it in a search for other data or we'd need a court order. I think one of them is a case named Salty Doe. That's a closed case where they have identified the body. I have some rough ideas of who the other cases might be from looking through resolved cases between the time of his arrest and the time the search would have been done. But the FBI could easily add the information to the search and give us particulars if it was relevant. I'm not sure that it is, but I can tell you that we definitely can get a lot of information from this list to get started with some ideas. So I split the list in the first and last names, um, then locations they're suspected to have gone missing, and the dates of last contact. Other people have done this online. There's at least one other podcast that's taken a look at this. They're sort of, um, they're sort of all over the place, so I don't, I don't know how we want to take a look, but basically... Besides the unknown cases, there are two cases we can rule out but should look at the names and the locations. And that is the 1959 case of Daniel Barter in Lillian, Alabama, and the 1988 case of Michaela Garrick in um, Hayward, California. Uh, the killer could not have been born in one, and in the other, he would have been 10. I have not really gotten the feeling that the same person who took a stranger at 19 and tied them up rape them, but self-reports that they could not follow through with strangling them would have been able to kill another person at 10. Yeah, that's not our guy. Oh, so, okay, so we get some information from these two cases that we are quantifying for the list overall. Right. We get the names Michaela and Daniel, and we get the time of year for the date of last contact of June and November. We have a California and Alabama location. And we have the victim's ages, nine and four. That's a part of the information that we're still checking into. But at this point, um, how, like, how young his youngest victim is? He had been two different people for 14 years. Most of these other cases take place roughly 14 years from the time he said it, which would have been early 2012. We have Kristen Smart in May 1996. Which we know is not him. How? Isn't that the girl that was final? No, is no, it? that's a that's Elizabeth Smart. She has the same last name, Elizabeth Smart. She was found. Oh, okay. Kristen Smart went missing from San Luis Obispo in California, and then we have Kristen Modafferi from San Francisco, California, in June of 1997. So, is it safe to assume that, like, maybe a Kristen is in the final list? Maybe. I think the dates are significant, and maybe the location. I have not decided about the names just yet, though. Uh, what do you think? I think all the names have to be looked at, and all the spellings and sound-alikes for the missing persons that we can find. This, this is not going to shrink my list. The dates on the killer's computer were bothering me. Two of the cases that stood out to me as possibilities 
were the Christens. Kristen Denise Smart was a freshman architecture major at California Polytechnic State University, Cal Poly, in San Luis Obispo, California, in 1996. She departed from an off-campus party and headed for a dormitory at approximately 1.30 on May 25, 1996. At the party, Smart was acting as if she was intoxicated or under the influence of drugs. When she left the gathering, she was having trouble walking. She was accompanied by a female acquaintance and another student from the university, Paul Flores, when she left the party. Smart apparently met Flores at the party earlier in the evening or in her travels across campus. Her friends separated from Smart and Flores at the intersection of Perimeter Road and Grand Avenue on the college campus. Flores allegedly told Smart's friends that he would see Smart to her home. She was last seen walking north on Grand Avenue towards Muir Hall, her dormitory. Smart has never been heard from again. She was not carrying any identification, cash, or personal belongings at the time she vanished. Flores was reportedly seen with a black eye later in the day on May 25th. When questioned about Smart's whereabouts by authorities, Flores claimed that he continued walking to his own dormitory and last saw Smart on Grand Avenue shortly after her other friend departed. Flores told several different stories to law enforcement regarding how he received his injury. At one time, he claimed he had hurt his eye playing basketball with a friend, but the friend told authorities Flores had had the bruise when he arrived at the game. When confronted with the lie, Flores changed his story and told police he had hurt his eye while working on a truck at his father's home. He allegedly told another friend that he did not know how he got the black eye and that he just woke up with it. Smart's roommate contacted police later in the morning of May 25th, worried because Smart had not returned to her dormitory. The roommate had been at the room the night Smart was last seen and never saw her get back home. Her clothing, toiletries, cosmetics, medicine, and identification were left undisturbed in her room. There is no evidence that she made it back there. Authorities refused to take the missing persons report for four days because Smart disappeared on Memorial Day weekend and college students often take impromptu vacations at that time. Smart's parents have criticized authorities for not getting involved in the case sooner saying they probably lost valuable evidence because of it. Police admit the delay hampered the investigation. There's a lot more to this story that you can listen to your own backyard, the podcast, to be filled in. Smart is described as friendly and generous. She is a competitive swimmer and had traveled to many places, including Hawaii and South America, prior to her disappearance. She had originally enrolled at the University of California at Santa Barbara, but transferred to Cal Poly early in her freshman year. Her case remains unsolved and foul play is suspected due to the circumstances involved. Kristen Smart was 19 years old, 6 foot 1, weighed 145 pounds. She was last seen wearing a light gray crop t-shirt, black nylon surfing or running shorts, and red and white Puma sneakers. She had dark blonde hair, brown eyes. Her nicknames are Roxy and Scritter. She had a tan at the time of her May 1996 disappearance. Kristen Deborah Modafferi was an industrial design major at North Carolina State University in 1997. She arrived in San Francisco, California on June 1, 1997 to attend a summer photography course at the University of California at Berkeley. She was employed part-time at the former Spinelli's Coffee Shop, now called Tully's Coffee, at the Crocker Galleria in San Francisco's Financial District during the work week. She worked at Cafe Musse in the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art during the weekends. She lived with a roommate on Jane Avenue in Oakland, California at the time, and was also taking a dance class. Motiferi asked a co-worker at Spinelli's for directions to Baker Beach, which is located next to Land's End Beach on June 23rd, 1997. Her shift ended at 3 o'clock p.m. that day, but she was seen approximately 45 minutes later on the Crocker Galleria's second floor with an unidentified blonde woman. The unidentified blonde woman with Motiferi has never been located. Witnesses said that she was holding a green Jansport backpack like Motiferi's at the time they were in the Crocker Galleria. Motiferi's family believes that it may be possible the female and Motiferi had plans to meet at the Galleria 
and may have departed together. The manager of Spinelli's, however, told authorities that Modafferi left the building by herself on June 23rd. Regardless, she has never been seen again. She never picked up her last paycheck, which was for $400. Authorities utilized bloodhounds in the ensuing search for Modafferi. The dog's tractor sent to the Geary Street number 38 bus from the stop outside the Crocker Galleria. That bus travels across San Francisco to the Sutro Park Beach and the area near Land's End Beach. Modafferi's scent was also traced at Sutro Park Beach, but the dogs lost the trail at the shoreline. No other evidence was located at either scene. Modafferi's personal belongings were searched, and a newspaper personal advertisement from the San Francisco area was among her possessions. The advertisement contained the following message. Friends. Female seeking friends to share activities who enjoy music, photography, working out, walks, coffee, or simply the beach, exploring the Bay Area. Interested? Call me. It is unknown if Motiferi placed the advertisement herself or if she answered the ad. All records from June 1997 have since been destroyed at the newspaper's office. It is also unclear if the advertisement is related to her disappearance. An anonymous caller contacted KGO-TV, the ABC affiliate in San Francisco, on July 10th. This was approximately two weeks after Motiferi was last seen. The caller said that he knew the identities of two women who abducted and murdered Motiferi and placed her remains under a bridge in the Point Reyes area of Marin County, California. The women in question told authorities that they believe the caller was John Anuma. The females had apparently been harassed by Anuma due to work-related problems they encountered with his girlfriend at the time. Jill Lampo. The women were preparing to fire Lampo from her position when Onuma allegedly began harassing them. Law enforcement officials questioned him about the incident, and he admitted to making the phone call to KGO-TV to cause problems for the women. Another female witness came forward and stated that Onuma allegedly abused her and threatened to kill her after Motiferi disappeared. The witness said that during the encounter, Onuma told her, now you know what happened to Kristen Motiferi. Three other women stated they had incidents involving Onuma and Lampo as well. Lampo allegedly lured the victims to Onuma and were subsequently abused by him. Authorities searched Onuma's residence and discovered Lampo's journal, which was missing pages from the time Motiferi vanished in June 1997. It is not known if either Anuma or Lampo is connected to Motiferi's case, and no one has been charged with involvement in her disappearance due to a lack of evidence. Anuma has since moved to Hawaii. Investigators looked into the possibility that Robert Durst was involved in Motiferi's case. Robert's first wife, Kathleen Durst, disappeared from New York in 1982. Her case remains unsolved, and Robert is considered the prime suspect, although he has never been charged in connection with her case. Robert was charged with the 2001 Texas homicide of Morris Black. He claimed he murdered Black in self-defense and was acquitted in 2003. In 2015, he was charged with murder in the 2000 shooting death of Susan Berman. Authorities don't believe Durst was involved in Motiferi's case, but he's still being considered in the 1997 disappearance of Karen Mitchell from Eureka, California, and the 1971 disappearance of Lynn Schultz from Middlebury, Vermont. Robert and Kathleen owned a health food store in Middlebury in 1971. Schultz visited it the day she went missing. Motiferi's case remains open and unsolved. It turns out the killer had family in California. I thought I might be looking for someone around that time frame whose name began with a K in California. There was another case on the Namus list. And keep in mind, the FBI thinks his first victim was after the military. Then we have this Susie Lyle disappearance in March of 1998, who was already on my list of potential victims pretty early. Another podcast is covering Susie, but here's an overview of her case. Suzanne Gloria Lyle. 
Suzanne Lyle was a computer science student at the State University of New York at Albany in 1998. She worked part-time at Babbage's Software in the Crossgates Mall in Gilderland, New York at this time. Lyle left work at approximately 9.20 p.m. on March 2, 1998 and boarded a Capital District Transit Authority bus near the mall. She exited the bus at approximately 9.40 to 9.45 p.m. at the Collins Circle stop on the SUNY campus. She would normally call her boyfriend of two years once she had arrived back at her dormitory room, but he never heard from her that night. He kept trying to call her, but she never answered the phone. She has never been seen again, and there is no evidence that she ever arrived at her room. Her ATM card was used by an unidentified person on March 3, 1998, the day after her initial disappearance. The card was used at Stewart's store on the corner of Manning Boulevard and Central Avenue in Albany about two and a half miles from the SUNY Albany campus. At approximately 4 o'clock p.m., someone used it to withdraw $20 from the cash machine. The person who used the card, whether Lyle or someone else, has never been identified, but they did type in the correct PIN number on the first try. Lyle's work name tag was discovered in an area adjacent to the visitor's parking lot at SUNY Albany two months after her disappearance. The tag was located approximately 30 yards from the Collins Circle bus stop. It isn't known if Lyle lost the tag the night she disappeared, but it did appear to have been exposed to the elements for a while. One of Lyle's co-workers told authorities that she mentioned she was being stalked by an unidentified man before March 1998. The co-worker stated that Lyle did not appear to be frightened of the person. It is not known if this incident is related to her case. Although Lyle's boyfriend claims he was playing games online with a friend at the time she went missing, and his friend supported his story, Lyle's parents feel he may have been involved in her case. They pointed out that, although he lived only about 10 or 12 minutes away from the SUNY Albany campus, he never came to check on her when she didn't answer his calls the night she went missing. According to Lyle's mother, her relationship with her boyfriend was unhealthy, and she had repeatedly tried to break up with him, only to agree to continue the relationship when he became upset. He has not been named as a suspect in her case, however. Another SUNY Albany student, Karen Wilson, disappeared in 1985, 13 years prior to Lyle. Her disappearance remains unsolved. Authorities have not found anything to link the two cases, but they stated the circumstances of the women's disappearances were similar. Lyle's case remains unsolved. She was raised in Boston Spy, New York. She's described as a quiet woman who enjoys expressing herself through poetry. She has been very interested in computers since she was a child and is an avid Rush fan. At the time of her disappearance, she was 19 years old, 5 foot 3, and around 165 pounds. She is classified as endangered missing. You can check out Upstate Unsolved to get a more in-depth look at her case. And she will come back later in the season because of some of the similarities in her case and the Samantha Koenig killing and the Courier murders and a couple of other things we found along the way. And I did find a California case. Call me. Hey, can you call me back? Um, If you don't mind, I think I found maybe not 100% sure, but if it's. If this is correct, I can def. I know where the bodies are, but I think I found the first couple. Rachel Ann Rhodes. Rachel Ann Rhodes went to Stump Beach in Sonoma County, California, on February first, nineteen ninety-eight. She was with her boyfriend, Jason Roll. They planned to spend the afternoon looking at tide pools. They were supposed to return home by early evening, but never arrived. Their families reported them missing the next day. Roll's red Mazda was found in the beach parking lot with personal items in it. Authorities believe the couple was swept out to sea and drowned. A three-day search of the ocean turned up no sign of them or their bodies. Their families held memorial services for them a month after they vanished. Rhodes lived in Guernerville, California at the time of her disappearance. She and Roll were both students 
at Santa Rosa College in 1998. They had been dating for about two years. Roll was studying biology and chemistry, and Rhodes was in the nursing program. She volunteered at a hospital and worked full-time at a school supply store. Their bodies have never been found. Rachel Rhodes was 20 years old, 5'4 and 118 pounds. She was last seen wearing a white, long-sleeved zip-up sweater, a black coat, and blue jeans. She has blonde hair and brown eyes. Jason Roll was 21 years old. He's 5'7", 155 pounds. He has brown hair and blue eyes. Roll was born and raised in Petaluma, California, and lived there with his parents and older brother at the time of his disappearance. And then I found a California case with a K. Sort of. Can you can you help me pronounce this name? Ekaterina, Ekaterina, e- Ekaterina, Shikher, Sh- I'm not sure. Shikherbakova, Shikherbakova. Okay. Shikherbakova. That, that could be it. Shikherbakova. Okay. Thank you. How do you say this name? Ekaterina Skorbakova. It's Russian, right? Yeah. So in Russian, everything I get off the internet and my own experience with Russian, that would be pronounced Ekaterina. Okay. So Ekaterina Sherbakova is what I think. Is that what you think? Something like that, yeah. Okay. That's what I'm going with. Ekaterina Sherbakova was last seen in Monterey, California on April 5th, 1998. She left her home on Casanova Street and went to a friend's home on the corner of San Pablo Avenue and Judson Street in Seaside, California. Her friend later said that Ekaterina left at 8 o'clock p.m. She was last seen walking toward Fremont Boulevard. She never arrived home and has never been seen or heard from ever again. Ekaterina was born in Russia and moved to the United States at the age of five. Her mother stated that she got involved with the wrong crowd after she entered the sixth grade at King Middle School. She briefly enrolled in Fitch Middle School for children with behavioral problems, then returned to King Middle School. Both the police and Ekaterina's mother believed that she left of her own accord when she disappeared in April of 1998. Some clothing was missing from her room, and there were several reported sightings of her in the local area after her disappearance. Investigators now consider foul play in her disappearance, however, due to the length of time she's been missing. Two months after Ekaterina disappeared, 12-year-old Christina Williams was abducted from Marina, California. Her body was found seven months later, but her murder remains unsolved. Authorities believe the homicide and Ekaterina's disappearance may be connected. Both girls were King Middle School students. Both had brown hair, and they were about the same size. Both of them disappeared while walking alone at dusk. Charles Holyfield is the prime suspect. He is presently serving a life sentence for the attempted kidnapping of a jogger in September of 1998. Holyfield has been linked to sexual assaults on three teen girls beginning in 1979, although he was only prosecuted for two of them. All of the girls had shoulder-length brown hair, appeared to be in their early teens, and were current or former Fitch Middle School students. Ekaterina disappeared only a few blocks from Holofield's brother's home, a place where Holofield frequently stayed. He is considered a possible suspect in her disappearance. It should be emphasized that Holofield has not been charged in Ekaterina's disappearance, and only the circumstances link him to her case. Her mother hopes that she is still alive. Her case remains unsolved. Ekaterina was 13 years old at the time of her disappearance. She was five foot three, 110 pounds. She had brown hair, green eyes, and a scar on her left ankle. Her nickname 
is Katie. So then I had to take a look at Christina's case. Christina Marie Williams was a 13-year-old American girl kidnapped in Seaside, California on June 12, 1998, while walking her dog Greg in an area of Fort Ord. Williams was born in Okinawa Prefecture, Japan, to a Filipino mother and an American father who was a chief petty officer in the United States Navy. She attended Fitch Middle School in Seaside, California at the time of her abduction. Before moving to California, Williams and her family lived at a naval base in Japan. It was the first time the family had lived in the mainland United States. Williams left her home at around 7.30 p.m. Greg returned home an hour later, trailing his leash. Exactly seven months later, a body was found on the former Fort Ord Army base, about three miles from the Williams' home, on January 12th. 1999. The remains were positively identified as those of Christina. The area where she was found had been searched previously, but nothing was found. Sketches of people suspected of the abduction, a man in his late teens and one in his early 20s, were widely released in the media, but they did not help identification of the suspects. It was reported that Charles Holyfield was a suspect in Williams' murder. He remains in prison for attempted kidnapping. He had raped teenage girls in the past. In 2011, an ex-girlfriend of Holyfield recanted an alibi for Holyfield she made in 1998, saying she had previously been threatened with harm if she withdrew it. In 2016, DNA found on Williams' clothing was found to match Holyfield's DNA. On April 6, 2017, the District Attorney of Monterey County announced that Holyfield would be arrested and charged with the murder. A death penalty trial for Holyfield was originally set for October of 2019, but has since been delayed to March of 2020. So what do we think of these cases? For me, Christina, although it sounds similar to Kristen, is a hard sell. However, E. Katarina, and her name actually not beginning with an K but with an E, would be the perfect reason to have a lot of names that start with K's of missing and murdered people on your computer. And the day that she went missing was Palm Sunday, 1998, which is the perfect time to go visiting your relatives in California with the rest of your family. Or maybe Holyfield is responsible for both of these missing and murdered girls. While I think I know where I can find Rachel Rhodes' body, I'm not as certain about E. Katarina. And one more case in California caught my eye. The reason... It was on the same date as Christian Smart's disappearance, except instead of 1996, it was 1998. And just like I thought I might have found the first couple, I think I found the first single male, too. I can't explain his continued presence in California, but if my theory holds up, it won't matter, because I know exactly where this body is. From the San Francisco Gate on May 27, 1998. Missing Yosemite hiker sought. A massive search continued Wednesday morning in Yosemite National Park for a San Francisco hiker who has been missing since Monday. David Paul Morrison, 28, was last seen by other hikers at 7.15 a.m. in Little Yosemite Valley en route to Half Dome. Morrison, described as an experienced hiker, did not appear to be equipped for overnight camping, according to hikers who saw him on the trail. He was wearing a sweatshirt and running shoes and carrying a day pack. Snow fell Monday night in Little Yosemite Valley and on Half Dome. A team of 75 searchers were searching for Morrison, assisted by five dog teams and a California Highway Patrol helicopter. The Park Service's search was hampered Tuesday by poor weather and because the staff was rescuing two climbers who were stuck near the top of El Capitan. National Park Service spokesman Kendall Thompson said Morrison's identity was determined from the belongings he left at Curry Village, where he had spent the evening of the 24th. We're counting on him having some good experience and making some good decisions up there. David Paul Morrison was 28 years old. He's five foot nine inches tall 
He weighed 150 pounds. He was last seen wearing a gray, long-sleeved University of California at Santa Cruz sweatshirt, a white t-shirt, black sweatpants, faded navy blue shorts, Nike Air sneakers, and a black, green, and yellow Osprey fanny pack. He's a Caucasian male with brown hair and brown eyes. Morrison has a birthmark on his right earlobe and a scar on the bridge of his nose. Although Morrison is an experienced hiker, he wasn't equipped for an overnight trip at the time of his disappearance. Neither was he dressed for the cold, wet weather. He is presumed to have gotten lost or injured in the park. I needed to close out the 90s and make sure that I'd covered all the possibilities I could think of. I also needed to know more about the killer's military service and where he might have traveled. Specifically, I needed to know how his turn of the century went and where he could have been between 1999 and 2001. There was only one interesting case in 1999, and it was also a K from California, and I felt like I needed to rule that one out. Dr. Catherine Wong, 48, was a San Jose pediatrician and Milipedis resident who mysteriously disappeared from the Bear Valley Ski Resort south of Lake Tahoe in California. Dr. Wong had gone skiing with her husband, 50-year-old pediatric dentist John Wong, two relatives, and two of her three children, a 9-year-old daughter and 13-year-old son. She was an intermediate-level skier and visited California's ski resorts on a regular basis. She was last seen February 19, 1999, at the ski resort south of Lake Tahoe. It is located on Highway 4 between Lake Tahoe and Yosemite in the central Sierra Nevada mountain range. It's described as a family-friendly resort that accommodates skiers and riders of all levels and abilities. It has more than 75 trails, 1,680 skiable acres, and 1,900 feet of vertical drop, all serviced by a total of 10 lifts. It was the family's first visit to Bear Valley, as they had heard it was one of the quieter resorts. Catherine ate lunch with the group about 11.30 a.m. and skied for the next few hours with her husband, while the kids went with their adult cousins. About 3.45 p.m., Catherine took a ski lift up the mountain with her husband, but then they separated, and she took a different path down using the Mokalumne West Run an intermediate slope. When John reached the bottom of the slope, his wife was nowhere to be seen. Dr. Wong was wearing a light gray jacket and light blue pants and ski boots when she disappeared. She had black hair, brown eyes, was 5 feet 4 inches tall, and weighed about 118 pounds. John and their son looked for Catherine for about 30 minutes and then notified resort officials that she had gone missing. The Alpine County Sheriff's Department and Bear Valley Ski Patrol searched for her with the assistance of two helicopters, 10 winter-trained dog teams, and about 50 search experts from nearly a dozen local law enforcement agencies. Two days later, the search was called off when a winter storm brought in heavy snow, when officials told the family that the chances of surviving such a storm were slim to none. After a significant search for Catherine, the authorities believed she may have met with foul play or left the resort. There were no tracks going out, except for animal tracks, Deputy Sheriff Matt Streck said. But if she's here, she's not able to respond to us. John Wong and the rest of the family were interviewed, and he voluntarily took a polygraph test, and authorities subsequently confirmed that he was not a suspect. He confirmed that Catherine was a cautious skier, and after over 20 years of marriage, he believed it was highly unlikely she had run off with another man, especially leaving her children behind. John complained that officials gave up too soon in the initial search for his wife. The FBI was involved to help detectives review surveillance tapes. FBI spokesman George 
Grotz said, said, absent evidence of foul play or possible interstate aspects, we will not be involved further. We've discussed it with them, and we can assist when asked. The Alpine County Sheriff's Department interviewed ski lift operators and other employees who may have seen Wong that day. Although credit card receipts prove that Catherine did purchase lift tickets at Bear Valley on February 19th, ski lift operators did not recall seeing anyone fitting her description. A review of surveillance tapes from the ski resort did not show anything suspicious. Deputy Matt Streck of the Sheriff's Department said the initial search for Wong was one of the most comprehensive operations he has seen in years, saying that I've personally hiked miles and miles myself since this happened. Shrek said he found it unusual that searchers have found no signs of the doctors at the ski area. I think as time goes by, it will become more evident that this was not a ski accident, but I have no proof of that. On June 10th, 1999, Catherine's body was eventually found around four months after she went missing. She was found in a steep ravine in a heavily wooded canyon a half mile south of the ski area and marked trails. Bone fragments and pieces of hair were found scattered over a quarter mile square area, together with a ski lift ticket, driver's license, and bank credit card belonging to Wong, as well as a parka, ski boots, a wristwatch, skis, and ski poles, and other personal effects. Investigators were baffled how she came to be in the area where the remains and personal effects were found, since the ravine is well outside of the ski area, in a remote area 400 yards away from a group of homes. Police found no evidence of foul play, and believed it was an unfortunate accident when Catherine became lost in hypothermic. Searchers had not bothered to look earlier in the area where the bone fragments were found, because it was considered highly unlikely that Catherine would have ventured there since it was in an area that would be difficult to reach by accident. Also, the area was covered by eight feet of snow shortly after she disappeared, but the fact that it was not searched confirmed John Wong's complaints about the thoroughness of the initial search, although recent melting snow had made the ravine more accessible. Because of the dispersal and scarcity of the bones, investigators speculate that wild animals may have disturbed Wong's body after her death. I was really just trying to wrap up the 90s so I knew where to go next. Finding somebody who went through, so one of the things is it can't just be, so if I can't answer these questions and we're gonna find somebody, then it needs to be somebody uh, who went through infantry OSIT during that time. Because, so like Paris, Paris Island, San Diego, they have the same training doctrine. It doesn't matter. Every Marine goes through the same thing no matter where they go. In the Army, it's very different. Fort Jackson is different from Fort Leonard Wood. is different from Fort Benning. So it kind of depends on what kind of question you need to answer. Well, so first of all, I have some, like, real basic questions I can run down. Like, if somebody left out of Albany, New York in 1998 to go infantry, Benning would have been a part of their training, right? If they went in initially as infantry, yes. Okay, so... After that, you know, you know, you know what I mean by that, right? Right, like they didn't get uh, scrubbed out, like they didn't go in for one kind of contract and then get scrubbed over to infantry for whatever reason. Correct. Or did it was sent to infantry as a secondary? So one of the things they did in the late '90s was they would take radio operators and medics, and after they got MOSQ, they would then send them through infantry uh, sections of infantry base. So those are, and, and there's a few other MOSs that basically roll with infantry that like 13 Foxes and stuff like that, where they did the same thing. Then they just went and started teaching the infantry shit in those, in those MOS schools, uh, probably starting in about 03. Okay. So if somebody went in in 98, like say they went in in like, I don't know, June or something, how long is their boot camp? There's a program in the Army called OSIT, one station in unit 
training, where their boot camp and their MOS school are the same school. They end up spending like seven months. I'll get the exact time. Um, but so standard, all right, standard Army boot camp is eight weeks, so two months. All right, so if he goes in in like June or July, he's out by August. Like what? What's it like right after Army boot camp? What's the first thing that happens? Uh, uh, AIT, MOS school. But I mean, like I understand, like in the term, I understand the bureaucracy of it. But what I'm saying is, like, do you get leave? No. So here's how OSIT works. It basically they take your MOS training and your boot camp, and they make one long school. You stay with the same unit, same drill instructors all this the whole time. And so what happens is, so like the first eight weeks is, is more boot camp stylish. And as you go on, like the last month and a half, two months, you're allowed to like go up post and wear civvies. They take more school and boot camp and make them one with the same drill instructors in the same, same unit. Gotcha. Okay. So you're there, you get through boot camp. Um, you graduate boot camp and you go. So he, yeah, he would have not been allowed off post legally with permission for at least four months. If he did betting, then we're talking. And he went in in June. Then then he's not going to be doing anything anywhere until I don't know, October, November. Unless it's around betting, because see, here's the thing. I mean. You know you could have gotten off base if you really, really, really wanted to. And let's be honest, this guy isn't a moron. If he wanted off base, he could have gotten off base. So I would not rule him out for anything that around Benning that he might have been able to get to by foot or bison. Okay, so, all right, so that puts us into, let's see. All right, so that's, that's going to be coming up on the end of 98. So let's say he gets all the way through – MOS school. What I, I know there's a number of paths that can happen. Somehow he ends up at Fort Hood and he ends up at Fort Lewis. Like, what would you think that path could look like? So he went to Hood first? I think he, yeah, yeah, he ended at Lewis. So yeah, he went to Hood first. Okay, so we can rule out him going to like Air Assault School or Airborne School out of Benning. Um, Okay. Do you guys, do you have his DD-214 with list of awards and devices? Um, I, man, it's buried in this FBI file. I could pull it up and send it over. Would that help? Um, not the, the biggest thing I'm looking at is look for extra qualifications. Ranger school, airborne, air assault, pathfinder, any like trinkets that he wears on his uniform that he'd be authorized that, that means a school. That would be helpful to keep into consideration on these things because he may have gone to Fort hood for a school or for advanced training. How long was he at hood? Uh, not terribly long. Let me, I'll tell you what, man, let me pull up his DD 14 and send that to you. Okay. And then we'll pick back up this conversation. Once you see it, does that work? Uh, it does. I have another demographic question about him. Was he married at all? Okay. So that gets us, to 2001 he was not oh, married but while he, he was in the military was he married no he was not married he was single okay. but he got somebody pregnant and that's why i didn't re-up okay no that's fine Here, here's the reason why i asked is in the 90s because all right i don't know when did you go in i was 98 okay 
So do you remember all the drawdowns in the military and shit? Oh, yeah, yeah. The Cold War oh, was yeah. over and all this stuff. So there was a manpower shortage. Because he was single, don't have to move families and uproot kids. In the, the mid to late 90s, up until 9-11, because 9-11 fucking changed everything, they would routinely um, transfer soldiers if there was a shortage, either against their will or voluntarily. There's also a thing that the Army allows you to do, which is, so I was a 13th Papa 20, okay, meaning as a 13th Papa and a sergeant. If I say I really don't like Fort Hood, it's too fucking hot. Screw this shit. I'm going to go to Fort Lewis, Washington. If I find a 13 Papa 20 in Fort Lewis, Washington, that wants to go to Fort Hood, let's say they're from Texas, we can put in paperwork with the Army and swap. The Army actually allows that, which is something that, like, the Navy and other stuff, they don't do. But the Army does. Got it. So there, there's a couple different possibilities. Um, depending on how long he was at Hood, he could have been there for a school. Well, it's this massive PDF document that the FBI sent me. I'm going to pull it up because um, I'm trying to close out his 90s. Basically, his service is 98 to 2001. And it's like, that's the other thing I couldn't figure out because it's like exactly three years. Did he get and, out before 9-11 in you know, one? Yeah, yeah, he got out that, that summer. He got out in June. So the Army... Let's see if they had a three-year contract in the 90s. That's, that's the other thing I'm hunting. There were some problems in his unit, and there were some court-martials. Not to him, but like to the uh, leadership. Actually, the Army offers two, three, and four-year contracts, depending okay. on your job. So that could have been contractually... Here's the thing. If it's exactly three years, I see that more leaning towards contractual. But it doesn't mean he wasn't ad set. Now, here's the thing. If he was after court-martial, there's a record of it that the FBI would have. Well, so that's not... And it'll be on his DD-214. And it'll be on his DD-214. Okay. Well, let me pull up the DD-214, and I'm going to have to crib it out of the... The other documents, I can't give all of them out, but I could give, like... Yeah, yeah, the, yeah, the DD-214 is fine. Um, if you could send me, like, if, if, you, if his military records are in there and you've got the chronology of his PCS moves, that would be helpful, just so that I have it in front of me as I'm looking at it. Those all are the right. two big things, and I can I can give you some better answers based on those. Okay. Well, I will, um, I will send this over, and uh, I'll, I'll just catch up with you once you have a chance to take a look at it. All right. I apologize for the audio quality and I promise it gets better when I pick this back up next week. I'm moving on to a different victim type and I'm going to start looking at the early two thousands for now. I leave you with this thought in Colin Fletcher's book, the man from the cave in part one, chapter one, the cave, he says it was four o'clock in the afternoon, Nevada time. November. I was walking up a narrow desert canyon, 20 miles east of Vegas, but light years from Neon. Hours had passed since the last sign of man. Cliffs and silence enveloped me. Then I came around a rock buttress and saw, 30 paces ahead, standing in the middle of a gravel patch as if on display, a trunk. I stopped in my tracks. Now I want you to see, clearly, the place in which this trunk stood, and to understand certain other things, too. Somebody once ruled that landscape is cows, scenery 
is when you think it's going to fall down on you. Even by such stern standards, this trunk stood in scenery, and I am not talking only about the canyon I was following. Just before noon that day, the second day of a week-long walk, I had been moving along the edge of an almost level plain when there opened up in front of me a gigantic rock basin, a deep two-mile-wide rubble hole. Ridges and canyons ribbed and furrowed it. At its sump, they converged into chaos. Thou shalt not pass, the place seemed to say. Thou shalt not pass. I think I said aloud, oh my god. I know the weight of the pack on my back had suddenly doubled. Now the rock basin was really a bay, an arm of a chasm that the Colorado River had cut through this country in an echo of its Grand Canyon, not far upstream. And I knew that if I wanted to, I could avoid it by detouring out on the plain. But when you are walking the way I was walking that week, your eye is fixed not merely on getting some place, but on the going. I was walking for the good of my soul, or something. In part, the week was a contribution to an ongoing project. Sometime in the next 150 years, I plan to complete a piecemeal walk along the entire Colorado River. Straying too far from the river would therefore have come close to cheating. Only an impassable stretch of chasm had forced me up onto the plain for a mile or so. But I was also walking to smooth out certain creases that furrowed my life, and I had already achieved some success. So I was in a holiday mood, unchained, carefree, and curious. And when I came to the edge of that huge rock basin, I did not hesitate for long. I took off my pack, sat down, lifted binoculars. What I saw was hardly people country, but before long, I thought I detected a way through. I heaved the pack onto my back again and went over the rim. Now I picked my way downward through a stark staccato rockscape. Crumbling brown ridges, gray rubble slopes, black lava, yet the place less barren than it had looked. A sparse but stalwart community of shrubs. Here and there, a tree hanging grimly on. Soon, coyote tracks. Then, bighorn sheep droppings. Once, a tortoise's empty shell. But nothing moved. The rock ruled. I went on down deeper. It was very, very quiet now. Rock walls closed in. I stopped for lunch, dozed, moved on. Several routes offered themselves. I chose one. Soon, Cliffs were rising, sheer, pressing tight. The silence solidified. Then as I began to climb out of the basin sump up a narrow canyon, I came around the rock buttress. Beyond it, the canyon ran almost straight for 30 or 40 paces. To the left rose a 100-foot cliff, part overhung, and at the foot of this cliff stood the trunk. It looked perfectly preserved, the kind of period piece you might find in a hushed-voiced downtown antique shop where everything, owner included, looks lacquered. And in that first moment, I felt as if I had walked in on one of those Faye TV ads that feature a car perched on a butte or an immaculate jet setter sipping wine in mid-howling wilderness. I hope you see now why I stopped in my tracks and will understand certain things that followed. When the surprise had ebbed, I walked forward. Thanks for listening today. This podcast is made possible by LabratiCreations.com. Check out the merchandise and specifically their fun pop pet art custom pieces made from photos of your very own pets. Use the promo code CRIMEXS, that's C-R-I-M-E-X-S, for 20% off a fun, brightly colored, happy piece of art of your own pet at their site 
L-A-B-R-O-T-T-I-E-C-R-E-A-T-I-O-N-S.com. That's LabratiCreations.com. Music in this episode was licensed for True Crime XS. Our theme song today is Indestructible by Noah Smith. You can reach us at our website, TrueCrimeXS.com, and you can leave us a voice message at 252-365-5593. Thanks for listening. Please like and subscribe if you want to hear more. You can come over to Patreon.com and check out what we've got going on there. If you'd like to donate to fund future True Crime XS road trip investigations and FOIA requests. We'd also like to thank Anchor and Spotify for having the coolest all-in-one podcast platforms available. Definitely download the Anchor app or go to Anchor. Dot .fm to start your own show today. This is True Crime XS.